Church, good morning. If you've got a Bible with you, open up to Luke chapter 2. That's right, Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 8 through 21. Luke 2, 8 through 21. If you got it, mm, that was... You guys saw the bulletin earlier. That's, is that way to go? Luke 2, verses 8 through 21. We're doing a small mini-series, Songs of the Season. We just sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. They, these, these angels, especially around Jesus' birth, um, either announcing it like right before, hey, Mary, great news, you're about to have a baby boy. Wait a second, I'm not married. What does that mean? Um, all the way up to leading up to the passage that we're at today, we're going to look at everyone's response to the good news that they announced. If you're able to today, would you stand out of reverence for God's word? This is what the Spirit of God has for us today through Luke. This is what he says. In the same region... There were shepherds out in the field and they were keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, a massive uh, worship team a massive army of angels praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Not questioning, but like, whoa, this is incredible. This is amazing. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for what they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is God's word to us this morning. You can be seated. There really is good news for everyone. That's the big idea that the message of the the angels wanted to communicate to everyone, both Mary and then before that, Elizabeth 
and the shepherds in this passage that we see. There really is good news for everyone. Question to set the stage though, who in your life gives the best kind of advice? Like who's the smartest, who's the wisest person? Who in your life, like when you go to them and you ask for their opinion, has your best interest at heart? Do you have that person's name in mind? On the count of three, say their name out loud. Maybe it's your spouse. Let's find out. One, two, three. What? Let's try that again. <clears throat> Warm-up exercises, okay? On the count of three, who gives the best advice in your life? One, two, three. Stephen. Although I love you, Steve, and although I love your son, Stephen, I'm thinking about a friend of mine who has been, goodness, someone I've looked up to for over 20 years. And he has this superpower just to be able to cut through really complicated problems and get to most of the time, oftentimes, like the best kind of outcome if we follow a certain set of steps, okay? That doesn't mean that he does it like with 100% accuracy. Um, I asked him for dating advice when I was 19 years old. And, mm, do I share this? There was a girl that I liked. I asked him about what to do. She was dating someone. His response was, and this was it. There was no follow-up. There was no continued instruction. It was, if she does not have a ring on her finger, she's fair game. That's very uncomfortable. And just not, like if you're a young person in here and wanting to date someone that might be dating someone else, that's not a good way to go. That's not helpful advice, that's bad advice. So even the very best of us that want to extend good advice to people, we don't always get it right 100% of the time, do we? What's the difference between advice though and news? Advice is helping people chart a course of action to get to a desired outcome, generally speaking. This is quite different than what news is, isn't it? News is simply reporting about something that has already happened. And good news at that is reporting about something that's already happened that should impact your life in a very positive way, no? That's what we see in the passage. That's the big overarching grandiose idea in the passage that there really is good news for everyone. There's good news for everyone. I bring you good news of great joy. That's what the angels are saying to these shepherds when they're watching their flocks by night, isn't it? They're not merely giving advice to these shepherds about how to pattern their life and what to do and how to be seen better in culture and how to be received better. There's nothing about that. They're saying that something has actually happened and they need to be in on what's happened. Look down just a little bit further though. 
You go to verse 9. The angel of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. This is way before CGI and comic books and video games. Why on planet Earth would these shepherds who are watching their flocks by night, why would they be afraid when angels show up? I could think of two reasons. Maybe you could think of more. One of them is certainly that angels are just really, really weird. And this is a really, really weird happening. It's not everyone in the Bible that gets to see an angel. But whenever an angel shows up, it seems like one of the big responses that people have is terror. This is not good. This is a supernatural being who's at the very least bigger and stronger than me. That's one reason. It's an appropriate response. But when you read the rest of the biblical witness too, another reason is Whenever angels show up, it seems like they carry a message with them. And oftentimes the message is judgment and destruction. You go to Genesis and you hear about two specific angels showing up to two very specific cities. Maybe you've heard of them, Sodom and Gomorrah. Angels show up to these two cities because of their godlessness. Not just because of one particular sin, but because they've abandoned decency overall. Or when you go to the Exodus, you hear about this destroyer angel that goes through Egypt, pronouncing judgment over Egypt because how they blaspheme God and how they've treated God's people and how they've chosen not to trust Yahweh and his commandments. Or when you go to the Revelation, you hear of angels pronouncing judgment and pouring out bowls of wrath upon the earth. This doesn't sound like good news, friends, does it? We see an angel of the Lord now, and we'll get to the reputation of shepherds a little bit later, but the unrighteous and unworthy seeing someone that's covered in the glory of the Lord, the only response that they can have is fear. What's going to happen to us? But that's not what they're there for. They're not pronouncing bad news. They're, they're instead telling them that good news is born. Good news was born for them. The rest of the text goes on and how they describe why this is good news for them. There was a baby from a very no-name family. His parents aren't known. They're not famous. He's growing up in a very no-name town in backwaters. And this baby ends up single-handedly being the most important person to exist ever. And Dr. Luke Dr. Luke gives us four different names or titles about who this baby is. First, he calls him the Savior. Good news is born because the Savior was born for them. There are a lot of would-be saviors at this time in the life of Israel and in past and antiquity. 
There were a lot of people that would promise a bill of goods and what ends up happening is destruction and chaos and pain and death. And it would be no different for Israel or Greece who would later rule over them or Rome who's currently ruling over them then. When Greek leaders, for example, when they would bring their culture to this newly subjected people that they were ruling over, they would, their leaders would call themselves soters or saviors. It is us saving you from your previous life by bringing you a better education, by bringing you better culture, by bringing you better gods, better political systems, better ways of life. And so you have dudes like Ptolemy the first, Soter, who was called Ptolemy the first, the savior. Etched forever in human history. And they thought that they could save the world and eventually they would be whisked away into nothing as dust. No one really remembers who Ptolemy the first is. Not normal everyday people anyway. Like every other would-be savior, he's forgotten. Now Israel needed a savior and they needed a rescuer, one that was promised to them hundreds of years before the actual event when Jesus would be born. And one that wouldn't just roll over his enemies, but would ultimately one day save them from their sins. But it couldn't just be any Savior. It couldn't just be any old person that is able to stand up to the plate with this. It's good news because a Savior was born, but it's also good news because the Christ was born. That's the next title that he's given. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. It's good news because Christ was born. It wasn't just anyone. There had to be one specific individual that would come and save people from their sins. There could have been thousands of babies born in Bethlehem that night. There was only one that was born in a manger and laying in a feeding trough. To be the Christ was to be the chosen one. But when we say that, what does that mean? A couple years ago, there was a guy named Andy Vogue. And the Cleveland Clinic wrote a little blurb about him. He had a really aggressive kind of cancer that diseased a lot of his internal organs and they were failing. And he needed medical intervention almost immediately. And after a 17 hour long surgery, um, it seemed like um, he was going to be a-okay. There was a multiple organ transplant. The only way in which the dude was going to be able to live, however, is if someone was going to give a couple of pieces that they just didn't need anymore. We don't know who the donor's name is, but we do know that they passed away. This is what Andy got from him in a multiple organ transplant. He got their liver, stomach, pancreas, duodenum, I, I can't pronounce that word, spleen. He got the right colon and small intestines. 
That sounds pretty aggressive, doesn't it? Almost like I kind of need that to live. In order for Andy to live, someone would have had to give their life. And there was only one chosen one who was able to fulfill all the obligations and expectations of who this deliverer of Israel would be. And then the picture becomes clearer for us, doesn't it? It's good news because a savior was born and the Christ was born. But it's good news because the Lord of the universe was born as well. And this is a big boy issue here, friends. There hasn't been a legitimate king on Israel's throne for a really long time. Herod the Great starts to reign at the end of the first century, but he's backed by Rome. And after he dies, his sons begin to sit on the throne and reign, and they do quite a poor job at it, might I add. And they have no legitimate claim to the throne of Israel themselves. You have a bunch of dudes who don't deserve to be on the throne thinking that they have power, whereas you have the ultimate king of the universe who's the ruler of heaven and earth who wields unchallenged and unmatched, unimaginable power laying in a manger with a poor family. The Lord is born. And the Savior Christ Lord has a name. Go down to verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. It's good news because Jesus was born. The last verse tells the story. This this savior who would rescue people from their sins, the chosen one who was only qualified to do this, who wields unimaginable, limitless power, is framed in an eight pound, four ounce baby. The being that created Mary in his mother's womb decides willingly to become dependent upon the very creature that he made. the very one whose prayers he heard when she was five and 10 years old as she prayed Israel's prayer and creed, the Shema, or how she would pray for God to provide for her family, he subjects himself to her. Good news has come. The very best news has come for us. So when we're in a situation that we want to be out of, when we don't like the pressure and the pain that comes, inspirational stories or getting advice from other people, like our hearts crave that a lot of the time. How do I navigate really difficult situations? How do I get from point A to point B? You ever heard of a guy named David Goggins? He has a massive social media presence. 
He was, a, he was a former active Navy SEAL. And he's a big fitness dude. And his cosign or his sign-off statement at the end of every post that he has is stay hard. What's he mean by that? He means keep pushing through really difficult circumstances. When there's a bunch of people that want to tell you to excuse yourself or find excuses to not deal with stuff, he tells them to buck up and just get after it. The problem with that is that framework, it affects everything in your life. And I would contend that that framework is spiritual in nature. Israel didn't need a savior because they didn't work hard. On the contrary, they worked tirelessly, furiously, fervently. They didn't need a Lord because they didn't have a king. They did. They just had illegitimate ones, didn't they? It wasn't that they needed just another Jewish boy born. And they didn't need a Christ that would merely give good advice and show them how to get out of their situations or merely inspire them. The good news of Jesus is so good because it's not a how to do this life. It is an announcement of what has been done for you on God's behalf, from God's own act, his own power, his own riches and grace for you. Jesus has come to rescue you. The baby boy in a manger has come because no one else could do what he set out to do. Johann Rist was a hymn writer and he asked the question, how can he quit a kingly state for such a world of greed and hate? The answer is you. Why would Jesus come? He would come for you. And you get that from the rest of the passage, I would contend. You get a feel for it. It's not obvious, at least grammatically, or like the etymology of it. When, when the angels are giving the good news, they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That's literally like the laity, or he's talking about Israel specifically here. And that makes sense because this was a Jewish Messiah promised hundreds, thousands of years before he would actually come. First with Abraham, that you would be the father of many nations. And then later on, Jacob, his grandson. Nations are going to be lesser you too. From David in his lineage or prophets that were either before the exile or even after they promised that this savior, Christ Lord would come for you. And so he does. It stands to reason that the good news would not stay in Israel alone. I wonder if you can see that from the chapter, from the passage that we're reading right now. If you go back just a few verses before, starting in chapter one, it starts with the very, very tippy top of earthly kingly power. 
in the year of Caesar Augustus, who was the representation of warped, mutated, evil power in the world. And then you see his governor of Syria, who's ruling over Israel at the time as a representative of, of Caesar Augustus. But then it comes to shepherds. I think it's safe to say that the, the shepherds had at least a very, um, their, their reputation wasn't good. City folk typically didn't like them. Maybe there's a little bit of that like kind of thing going on today. City folk and country folk, they just don't get each other. Do you have relatives that live in the country right now? They like the slow pace of life. It's way too busy out here. You can't have all the guns. You can't do what you want. We went back to Indiana for a couple of weeks to, or a couple of weeks ago and got to visit some old friends. And they were wondering, how do you like life in the big city? And like, I don't know if you understand the situation we're in right now, you know? Um, even, even then, even today, there's still a little bit of conflict between city folk and country folk, but that's not even like the biggest issue. The biggest issue was with religious folk and how they related to these shepherds who considered them outcasts. If they were called in front of a court, in front of a jury, their eyewitness account didn't matter. It was unreliable. And some people thought that they're just shifty. And they're just a bunch of thieves. They had a problem discerning the difference between mine and thine. They would take stuff that wouldn't belong to them. That's what they thought, at least. The Talmud didn't paint them in a positive light. But can you imagine an entire group of people today that act like they're self-governed? They don't want to hold to anyone else's rules or obligations or expectations, and they're largely seen as unclean, both physically because they might smell a little weird and spiritually too. And they might even be known to take things that don't belong to them. Do you know anyone like that? Do you know of a group of people that might be known like that? It wasn't the angels going to Quinarius. It wasn't a group of angels going to Caesar Augustus. It was an angel going to this group of outcasts that didn't find a home in the cult living of Israel. And angels come for them to announce good news of great joy. Let's get a little uncomfortable in this Christmas season. Can we do that? In this passage, we can clearly see he's talking about good news of great joy that there would be a Savior, the Christ, the Lord, Jesus, who was born to a Jewish family, would be circumcised on the eighth day. The rescue that he promises is spiritual. 
ultimately and finally. Salvation that totally surpasses and impacts all of history. That's what, that's what Jesus promises to everyone that trusts and believes in him. That would say, instead of going my way, I want to go your way as Christ and as Lord. I know that you know the path and I want to follow you all of my days. That transcends history. The challenge that we have to reckon with on the other hand is that because Jesus has come in real human time at a very particular place in human history, we can speak to every element, whether it's political or social or economic, from a theological lens. In other words, everything, everything, everything that we say, do, and believe and how we spend our money and how we spend our time and how we think or how we relate with other people and what we say about other people, all of it is theological and spiritual. Everything that we do is impacted by the spiritual. And so it's not the powerful and the right that hear of a true savior. It's, it's the outcast. And then salvation comes to a seemingly dysfunctional family where there is a very young teenage girl who gives birth to a baby boy who her husband wasn't involved in the, in, in the process. You, you get it? It's, it's, it's painful even in the first century. And it makes people bristle even today. It was this Jewish family, this poor Jewish family that was responsible to raise the ultimate king of the universe. And he came to rescue not just shepherds, but even Joseph and even Mary too. And the good news is that he came for the least suspecting. And when you follow Luke's story of Jesus's ministry from beginning to end, and not just the end of the gospel, but when you go to his volume two, Acts, you see the mission of Jesus unfolding for not just shepherds and outcasts and poor people and powerless people, but even people outside of God's family. You see Jesus's rescue mission unfold for everyone. And so the good news of Jesus is for everyone. I wish he were here right now. I wish Jesus were here right now. But I wish Pastor Paul were here too. In 1962, you know about Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Like him or not, he had a compelling vision for bringing people together. Little black boys and little black girls being, you know, little white boys and little black boys being able to hang out together in unity. He wanted to end segregation and racism in America, but there was someone in our congregation that did it before him. In 1961, Pastor Paul was pastoring a church here in the St. Louis metro area in our association and in the south end of the city. Um, he shared this story with me a couple weeks ago. He, he actually led 
one of the first churches in the Southern Baptist, in Southern Baptist life around here to integration. Even when there were questions, even when there was a lot of pushback from other churches that were surrounding the area, Pastor Paul just led boldly and courageously and gently to that particular end of seeing black and white people worship together, and it was bananas. Pastor Paul was an agent of the reconciliating nature of the gospel. So the gospel, while it's for all kinds of people, it's not for all kinds of hearts. While Christ came for you, it doesn't mean that your heart is ready to receive it. It doesn't mean that your neighbors are ready to receive it. The birth of Jesus is so counter to the well-to-do, entrepreneurial, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, claw to the top kind of life that Americans prize and love. And maybe not being at the very top, but at the very least being like self-sustaining and self-sufficient and self-efficacious. The small wants to be big. But in the economy of God, in in Jesus' upside down kingdom, the big became small for you. In a world where we feel defenseless and powerless, we want to consolidate power. Whereas in Jesus' kingdom, he who wields unimaginable power empties himself and becomes weak for people like you and me. The sick and the lame, the hurting, we want to be well. And so people look for ways to prolong their life and have health. But the light of life came and he lived and he died and rose again. And he presides now as Lord. so that you can have life. So the good news of Jesus, all of it, forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with God, healing and joy and being known and loved by him, all of it comes to you as you are right now, but there's a response to give to him. What is a good news response to offer to him who has given you such good news? We can see, that's right. I think thank you starts it. You can see three different things. The shepherds, they continued to teach what they had received. When you read verses 15 through 17, angels, boom, gone. What happens? They make haste to see what has just come. They're running. Another translation might say something like, they hustled very quickly to get to their destination. And they kept talking over and again about what the the angels had told them, about this good news of great joy. They told Mary, who already heard the good news months before it actually came about, 
And certainly there were people there that didn't quite have a really great picture of everything that was unfolding before them. Regardless, they had a captive audience and they were filling in the gaps of the good news for these people. They taught them. And so your good news response biblically, your good news response biblically is to teach people and help them fill in the gaps of God's great love and justice meeting in the person, the baby boy of Jesus. Who in your life has massive gaps about what God has done? Who in your life knows that God is love but doesn't equally know that God is holy too? Who in your life knows that Jesus was a good teacher but do not acknowledge him as Lord and master? Who see him as a martyr but don't see him as a savior? Who see him as maybe God but don't acknowledge his humanity? You are sent just like the shepherds to teach good news and fill in the gaps. But they also, Mary treasured what she heard. When Mary heard everything, the shepherds told her what happened. She heard these words and she treasured them and pondered them in her heart. Literally, it's when, when we hear treasuring, we should think of, you, you ever been to a bank before? Maybe you have a, 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 a security box in the back. This is where you keep your precious valuables. Or maybe you have a safe in your home where you keep documents that are really important to you. Maybe a gun or two. Maybe your precious jewels. I don't know. But she kept these things in the lock box of her heart. And she treasured them there. She doesn't treasure the fact that shepherds came she treasures the fact that they were able to fill in the gaps that she, she didn't quite know. Maybe, maybe I'm starting to agree with the song now, Mary, did you know? She didn't know everything that was gonna unfold. And so it starts to produce awe and wonder as she ponders the good news of Jesus. Even though she gives birth, she still needed to hear it. And so some of you don't just need to give the gospel away to people. Some of you need to hear the good news of Jesus again and again and again and again, that he came for you. And you need to let it roll around this good news. You need to let it roll around in every square inch of your being to enliven you and encourage you and challenge you. The best response that we can give today to Jesus' sacrifice and love is to place it in the place of highest regard in our life. The Big Lebowski, it's a terrible movie, but I remember this scene where this guy, the main character, he comes home and his rug is gone. Someone stole his rug. And he was broken up about it. Why? Because he said it really brought the room together. It was always in front of him. He always saw it. He always walked across it. It was always a part of the room. 
Where in your life can you place the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, in a place of prominence to treasure constantly and ever bring it before you? And finally, the shepherds, they went on home and they kept talking about it, didn't they? There are two words that are used here. They praised God and then they worshiped him as well or glorified him. When they say that they praised him, you can think of it as they didn't just say this is a good thing. God, way to go. Congratulations. It's not merely giving an attaboy. It's, it's giving the highest seal of approval that you and I could possibly muster. God, I agree wholeheartedly with what you said and did, what you said about your son and what you did through your son. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I acknowledge that the only way to reconciliation in life is through you. And so I glorify you not just in giving you proper worth, but glorifying in such a way, the, the text reads, is that I'm trying to convince other people around me to get on board with me as well. That's the thrust of glorifying. And so is the gospel of Jesus praiseworthy to you? Can you give heart and soul your seal of approval about it? And when you glorify God, do you do it in such a way that compels other people to believe with you that God is glorious? Because he is. Here's what Baptist really good news has come. It's come for everyone. It's come for us. It's come for you. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the angels. Thank you for Mary. Thank you for saving us. Mary is no co-redemptress, but she is your son's mother. And we're grateful that you sent Savior, Christ, King, Jesus. There is no other one whose lives, um, whose life we can depend on, whose work we can depend on, whose character we can depend on other than his. And so like the angels and like the shepherds, may we talk about it. May we teach about it. Like Mary, I pray that when we hear the good news of Jesus over and again, we wouldn't succumb to what oftentimes when we're so familiar with things, that we would be numb to the preciousness of your good news, but rather we would treasure it in our heart. Would you do these things? Father, thank you for making Christmas not just a thing, but as a story of how you come to save us. We give you the rest of our time and our days. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.